Hello there, Fenella Kernabone is my name and this is By Design, it's great to be with you. Today, back to Bakelite, the most powerful room in the world and a tiny building with big ideas. Now coming up first today, I meet a man with a healthy obsession for vintage art deco radios. It's all about designing for sounds. Also, how to design a room for major decision-making. We take a seat at the round table in the UN Security Council chamber and the transformation of a heritage space for two architects in Brisbane. And it's a tiny space, to say the least. It's pretty much a space that's smaller than you could fit two cars in. So it's smaller than two, a double sort of carport. So when you think about it that way, there's quite a bit going on in here. Where's the piano? Oh, the piano. You just step aside, so this wall sort of slides open and zigzags out of the way and the piano's in behind there. We can prove that it's a piano. <laughs> and you'll be hearing more of that piano, but also about this tiny studio from Brisbane at Studio 217 a bit later on on By Design. But let's begin. A couple of weeks ago, I walked into what was an amazing Art Deco apartment in Sydney to meet a man who collects something very specific. The apartment itself reflects a Manhattan apartment around the 1930s. And in every single room, the hall, the kitchen, the living areas, the bathroom, probably, I bet the bedrooms, although I didn't see them, there are, in some cases, floor to ceiling, some of the most exquisite Art Deco radios you could imagine. The collector is Peter Sheridan, and he's recently released a comprehensive book devoted to documenting his collection of some of the rarest radios ever designed for the home and the workplace, including the work of industrial design legends like Raymond Lowy. So let's enter Art Deco Radio World. It's like an art installation, standing in front of them, there are every colour of the rainbow, every shape, every sort of design, and it's almost impossible not to feel that you want to stroke these radios and, uh, and go and touch them. And you do, I imagine. Oh, absolutely, I don't dust, I stroke. <laughs> this is the perfect family scene, when Mom, Dad and Junior all want to hear the same radio program. Do you have your first radio on hand? Yes, uh, to your left and my right is a, a green American tombstone Emerson which I found in a shop in the Angel Islington. There was a Camden Passage, was an antique area in London about 15 years ago and there were two radios in this shop and I bought both of them thinking these were extraordinary shapes and designs and colours and it began an obsession for collecting radios. Was it more than just the design? Did you have a kind of a nostalgia for it yourself? Well, I had a Bakelite radio as a kid and, and I loved that radio. It was a sort of a vehicle to the outside. I was able to listen to that at night and when Sydney radio stations went down, uh, you could listen to Brisbane and Melbourne. But I think I was looking at this style and the design and the colours and, and it was a brand new world. And it was a brand new world and this is what your book and, and certainly the story of these radios represented is a time when mass 
production starts to filter through. It's a time when industrial design is also starting to kind of really find its feet. It already has, but I mean, around the time of the radios that we see here, this is when even the title of industrial designer was really starting to be used properly. Well, it was a very fledgling profession, and in the early 30s, when these radios, or many of these radios, were designed, most of the guys were unknown, and they are now much more famous for things they designed later. And very little is written about the radios they designed, because these were not very high-quality commissions, but in the early 30s, during the Depression, when nobody was buying anything, the one thing people wanted were radios. And so these guys got their start. Uh, most of them had come from other professions. They were particularly in America, set designers, graphic designers, fashion illustrators and furniture designers. In fact, if you look at the history of almost all the designers involved here, and these are the founders of streamlining in America and in the UK, these are virtually the first things they design. I mean, if you look at Raymond Lowy, he designed a couple of radios, beautiful radios, colonial radios in 1933. He didn't design the cold spot refrigerator till 34 and the Pennsylvania Railroad till 36. If you look at Osama Noguchi, who designed the Noguchi coffee table in 46, the radio nurse was designed in 1937. So almost all of these designers got their feet wet on radio. Can we talk a bit about, Peter, the idea that because it was in everybody's home, this idea, I mean, the tabletop radio, you know, it, it, how design through mass production and mass ownership suddenly filtered through, in, I suppose, into our understanding of what good design might be. If you look at 1930, you have it is a difficult time around the world. In most countries, you've got political turbulence in Europe, you've got the Depression, but it's the beginnings of industrialisation or mass production. And so with these radios, what you're seeing, they were lucky because in 1930, the first mantle radio was produced. And this was a new form, it had no predecessor, whereas the console sort of morphed from the phonograph and like the car morphed from the car, horse and cart, the mantle or tabletop radio didn't have any predecessor. So when the radio manufacturers sort of were looking to spread the net of radio wider, knowing they had a market out there, the industrial designers who, who got their hands on this didn't have anything that forced them into a particular uh, mould. So they could design them to look like architectural pieces they could look like bullets, they could look like sleds, they could look like... Uh, May West's boobs. May West's boobs, exactly. And with the new materials like the plastics, which allowed them to create moulds and then produce them in different colours, it was really the first time that art met industry. And what I think is interesting is that we've looked at art through painting for, for 40,000 years and we recognise that as a long-standing type of art. We look at art through photography, and we've just really realised that 200 years ago and are now appreciating it. Art through industry really is less than 100 years old. And even though these things are cheap, they were made in volume and made out of materials that weren't considered very high quality, you know, when you talk about design, you're looking at something that's beautiful, functional and accessible. And these radios are all of those things. And the beauty in these designs is the artwork. Mm. And so I see these as not only the first expression of art meeting industry, but art through industry. Mm. Have you ever turned any of these on? Yeah, I was going to turn one on for yeah. you in there. <laughs> I can even get I can get 702 on there. Oh, yeah, the problem here is we have a, uh, an issue with the Navy nearby and uh, it interferes with our uh, radio reception. So here I have all these 300 radios and the static is intense. Is it a bit much? Okay, let's go and have a listen, um, if you can. Uh, on by design, I'm speaking to Peter Sheridan. I'm in his home, surrounded by Art Deco radios. We're going, aren't we going into the den, Peter? 
This radio here is a New Zealand wood radio, wood console, called a Pacific Elite. It is the best thing that was ever produced in New Zealand. Most of the radios are really boring. They really had no colour there at all until the late 40s, so they copied basically uh, Australian designs and English and American designs. But this radio was produced in 1934, and it is also nicknamed the May West. Uh, you can see the triangular, the mm. waist section at the bottom. And it is probably one of the most beautiful radios ever produced. Next door to it is the Dorwin Teague Nocturne, which is this extraordinary four foot high round mirror glass blue mirror glass radio with chrome accents which was designed for either a, a large hotel foyer or a very very expensive hollywood house and there are very few of those remaining mainly in museums in america but i'm going to turn the pacific elite on and see if i can get the, a radio station for you <laughs> okay hard to get rn i imagine yes i can't get Okay, no RN, so we'll go for local Sydney radio. We have to wait. With okay. all radios, you wait. The light may come on, and then you wait in tense anticipation for something to happen. <laughs> then there's some static. I have some albums that sound like this. Good, I hope so. <laughs> I say free, premium outlet shopping tour. I don't think that's 702. <laughs> no, I think that's a commercial station. It's all in AM, obviously. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and shortwave. I mean, it would have been a lot easier to get a channel back in the day, I imagine. Well, there wasn't so much interference. I mean, yeah. that's the problem now. There's so much electrical interference. You take this somewhere else out in the country and it'll work perfectly. I mean, it's a very, very nice radio um, that, that has quite high performance. You know, six, seven valves and uh, lovely speakers. So you would get wonderful performance out of this. Uh, just in the city, uh, this, this can be an issue. Mm. I feel like I should be sitting on the floor in front of it waiting for the comedy hour. Exactly, exactly. You know, Yes What or Tarzan, Superman, uh, Blue Hills, all of those wonderful programs. Hey, have you done your homework, Bottomley? Homework? Yeah, chemistry. Oh, I went to the pictures. It's interesting in some ways. We're so obsessed with our gadgets these days. Everybody's got a smartphone of some kind. You know, there's there's all these different things in our houses. Obviously, people had beautiful objects in the Art Deco period and, and prior, but this is the first kind of el electronic beautiful object that most people could have in their home. Absolutely. I mean, when you look at the uptake of radio as against other communication media, radio was the fastest and most complete of all of the other media, even the internet. And when you look at it, it took 20 years for 90% of Americans to have a radio in their house and about 70% of all the information people got was from radio. So in terms of the way in which this radio was ab absorbed and taken up by the people, it was uh, an extraordinary uh, effort mm. right around the world. Mm, it was, it certainly was. But it's not only that, I mean, it's obviously that's in America, but for, say, in Germany or in Russia, this is, let's get a radio in everybody's home so we can sell, you know, our leader's message. Well, of course, the use of the radio as propaganda probably started in Italy with Mussolini and one of the radios up here, which is called the Radio Belila, you can see Mussolini's axe in the motif on the grill. And by 1933, the Germans or Na the Nazis had taken over in Germany and they forced the radio manufacturers to contribute 40% of their production to produce cheap radios which would only listen to Nazi propaganda. By the early 40s, it became actually treasonable and you could be put to death for listening to a radio station that was outside Germany. 
So when did the radio, these radios that you collect, stop being used? When did they get usurped? The Art Deco radio that I collect runs from about 1930 to about 1950. Of course, new plastics came in after the war, then the transistor, and so the Bakelite or the plastic radio and the valve radio disappeared fairly quickly. What you see today is that radio is disappearing as an entity and becoming more and more part of a, a, the mass media of the internet and so forth. And it's interesting that our grandchildren will probably not even recognise that a separate box was required to listen to radio. Well, there's absolutely no chance of teaching you boys anything. No, no sir. Well, good morning, boys. Good morning, morning sir. Good morning, boys. And a bit of that show that Peter Sheridan mentioned called Yes What that he used to listen to when he was a child. And yes, that was Peter Sheridan on By Design. And the book is all about Art Deco Radios. It's called Deco Radio, the most beautiful radios ever made. I've got to say, they are pretty beautiful. Now, coming up soon on By Design, we're going to be visiting arguably the most powerful room in the world and a tiny, tiny studio for two architects in Brisbane where even the piano is hidden away. You're with Fenella Kernerbone here on RN. And this is By Design. And after By Design, Michael McKenzie on your radio eating some hospital food with RN First Bite. And for the first time, I actually enjoyed it. Really? What do you eat? I ate braised beef with olive casserole. Mm. I could have had a tagine. I kid you not. A tagine. I could have had cumin laced or cumin-laced potatoes. This, this does not sound like a hospital I have visited no. before. Fancy. This is a public hospital, though. This is a public hospital that opened literally only days before I got there to Perth, Fiona Stanley Hospital, where the porters are robots. They deliver the food to the ward automatically from down in the bowels of the hospital. They even text the ward sister to say the food's arrived. And were you sick, or this is a special visit? Are you okay? Arguably, I I could have been unwell. Uh, But no, I was perfectly healthy and I could have easily stayed because even the snack box they gave me to take away was delicious. And six meals, Fenella, done for $15.82 a day per patient. Well, that sounds good. Nice and cheap. Yeah, it's It's affordable. Good food can be affordable. If the food's good, then you... you, I mean, obviously, you can get better a lot quicker, so it's very important. That's right, because Mm. there's, um, um, in fact, studies to show that uh, a percentage of people are leaving hospital more malnourished than they went in. Yeah, basically, I've had friends in hospital before. They've asked me to bring food for them because they're starving. They want to eat good food, proper food. This is good. RN First Bite, Michael McKenzie, after By Design. Thanks, Michael. Cheers, Vanilla. This is By Design, of course. Vanilla Kernerbone with you. The Scottish Brothers Boards of Canada. That one is called Chroma Key Dreamcoat. They are one of my favourite outfits in the entire universe. And that one does suit our story about colourful Art Deco radios. This is by design, of course, on RN. Fenella with you. Now, most of you will know through the images in the media of the UN Security Council chamber, that room with the big round table around the UN representatives who sit and discuss security issues. Now, Australia has just finished a stint chairing the Security Council meeting. Foreign Minister Julie Bishop was Australia's chair. 
for Design File today. Monocle's Ed Stocker visits that room with a US-Norwegian consul and Norway gifted the room to the UN. So here is a glimpse into the behind-the-scenes story. This is a very important part of Norwegian architectural legacy in New York and uh, we find that the Norwegian connections to what we like to think of as the most important room in the world are key in our efforts to promote current Norwegian design and architecture because this particular legacy forms a, a backdrop and a history that's relevant today as well. What's the overlap between the original designs from 1952 that are in the Security Council room and today? How much of an overlap is there between Norwegian design from then and now? The Norwegian architect uh, Arnstein Arneberg, he was uh, very interested in making an emphasis on local heritage, craftsmanship, things that we see are important in terms of design these days as well. And he wanted the design of the room to be of a character so neutral that, like he was saying, it could withstand the test of time. And we see that some of the features, while they are kept and renovated exactly as they were in 1952, that they still feel relevant design-wise, and that's interesting. Tell listeners about Norway's involvement here. People might want to know why a Norwegian architect was charged with overseeing the design of the Security Council and why you know these Norwegian designers are featured in there. What's the link between the UN and Norway? So the first Secretary-General of the United Nations was the Norwegian lawyer and politician Trygvili. And when he was elected, the UN had not yet found a permanent home. And he helped secure a site for the UN's future headquarters in Manhattan. And he was instrumental in arranging for the Norwegian design of the Security Council chamber. Whether he was wise enough to foresee that that would in fact be the most important room in the UN, we don't have any historical archives stating that. But I'm guessing that he was a very pragmatic politician and I'm certain that he... He saw that it made sense to connect his country to what became and still is the most important room in the world. So Norway gave the Security Council Chamber as a gift to the United Nations in 1952. And our involvement in the design and architecture currently also features funding to the UN in connection to the grand uh, renovation process that they've gone through recently. And we're honoured to not only have been the country that has donated this room, but also helped restore it recently. We think of it as the most important room in the world. Obviously, the you know what's great and credible about the Security Council is how enduring it has proved, as you were saying. The design of the round table, the chairs, even the mural that hangs on the wall. How does Norway feel, if you can sum that up, about the fact that perhaps... Swedish and Danish mid-century design gets more press than Norway does. Uh, you're absolutely right. Norway has had a position as the underdog in the design world for a long time, but that is changing. We have uh, many new, young, wonderful designers who are really making their mark internationally. So Norway is sort of having, having a moment, design and architectural-wise.
And that is the US-Norwegian Consul of Cultural Affairs, Xenia Christosomides, with Monocle 24's Ed Stocker. And you can find links, as always, on By Design's website. And now we head in the field, and today we're off to Spring Hill in Brisbane to one of Brisbane's historic buildings, Craigston. This was built in 1927, and it was the first residential high-rise built in Brisbane. And its basement has had quite a few lives, from storeroom to solicitor's office, and it's really tiny. It's about the size of a double garage. Now it has become Studio 217, a space where the building's history has been honoured and its owners, architects Amali Wright and Richard Buchanan, can spread their wings. Sure, we're just coming past the side of the, the building and into the entry of the studio. So we've been through our little entry courtyard, which is all um, made of recycled materials, which was really important to us. So a lot of the materials are recycled from elsewhere in the building. So the crushed up brick on the ground actually came from one of the flats upstairs that someone was renovating. They knocked a hole in the wall, so we kept all the brick. Pretty much this was a, a plasterboard enclosed space, low ceilings. So we wanted straight away to remove all of that and just see what was left. Big dreams and big ambitions, pianos and libraries and life into 32 square metres. Yes. Yeah. So it's, it's pretty much a space that's smaller than you could fit two cars in. So it's smaller than two, a double sort of carport. So when you think about it that way, there's quite a bit going on in here, we think. It's got our workspace. Where's the piano? Oh, the piano. You just step aside. So the it's in the cupboard. Yeah, so this... This wall sort of slides open and zigzags out of the way and the piano's in behind there. Wow. We can prove that it's a piano. Yeah. And it's a very old piano, so it's an heirloom? Uh, Richard's mum's piano. But it's about a rich history in a, in a Queensland rural hotel. Oh. And, um, yeah, it's, it's moved around with the family. <laughs> and we were going to take it upstairs, so it had to stay down here. When the day came to, to move in and you'd work through your drawings and your plans and you realised that your dreams could come true. What happened then? Did the council put any, or the strata, or did anyone put any restrictions on you around what what it was that you wanted and what they thought should be here? Craigston, the building that we're in, is on the State Heritage Register uh, and it's a very important building in Queensland's history, but nothing that we've done has impacted on the things that are important to Craigston so we haven't impacted on anything that's visible from the street or touched the elevations of the building. Because the building is company title as well, um, we obviously had to go through the process of speaking with all of the directors and then casting a vote. And that? it was fine. Yeah. Everyone was great. Unanimous. Things were signed. It was unanimous. Yes, there was no issues at all. So, But I suppose they wanted something, a future for the basement. Yeah, I think they could see a potential, I guess, as well. The whole space is an exercise in recycling and making sure that all the space is used like this, a bed coming from nowhere. Yeah, so the platform where all our desks and drawing boards are is elevated so that we can have a desk at the windowsill level to get good natural lighting in the morning when we're working. Um, and because that's raised up, that then gives us a space under the platform mm. for the accommodation. So that all, the area under there all slides out. So there's a there's a big area underneath there for accommodation. So it can lock in place back here and become a seat. Yeah, so it becomes Very a seat clever. as part of this sort of sitting and meeting area. And this is where you bring your clients? Yep. And yep. that's been the thinking, of course, how to make every single bit of space work and not be too cute, too. 
Correct, yeah. Just taking advantage of the opportunities we had, knowing we had minimal amount of space and making good use of what we could do. So it was pretty much considered, I guess, as a one large piece of cabinet work. Um, the whole room, the whole space? I think so, yeah. Um, and it was how you orchestrate putting objects, books, your work equipment into that space. How hard was it to do this? I think the challenge for us was less in terms of the space and its requirements and more in terms of the fact that we were our own clients. Because we're both designers, we want, you want everything that you do, that you're doing for yourself to be the best that you possibly can make it. Mm. So you put pressure on yourself that way. So when you're working for another client, regardless of the scale of the project, you definitely want to do the best for, your, for the client and for the project, but it's a different sort of approach that you take. And I guess you have a bit more freedom to try different things out when you're doing it for yourself than maybe you would working for somebody else. The main uh, working platform was the key in the room and then we knew we had this sort of 11 metre long wall in which would be a great library and storage wall basically. The space is divided into two spaces, there's a narrow space and then there's a a larger space. Look, it's like a giant cubby house. (laughs) Essentially, it is. Yeah. Exactly, yeah, so it's all about making these little sort of moments in an overall cabinet of curiosities really. Yeah, so... Craigston is located in Spring Hill, an inner-city Brisbane suburb, and we were really keen to relate the design to the local context. So there's a particular geology of this part of Spring Hill, which is uh, strated and layer rock formations that are then tilted and uplifted. So you can see it in different street cuttings around here. We really wanted to pick up on that. So there's these strong horizontal lines running through the space that set up the library wall that set up even the detail on the edge of the plywood so you're seeing the lines right down to that level of detail and then when different changes of function happen there's a tilt so that there's a tilting plane that sort of shifts the direction that tries to reference that geology. One of the interesting things you've done in this tiny little space you put a mirror on the ceiling. Partly to create another unexpected moment of delight so some people walk in and, and they don't notice it, and that's fine, and then some people do, and they, some people get a shock. It's Again, it's a play of the depth and the distance, so it's just a little visual trick that we, it's quite nice, and it makes our library look twice as big. The light is filtered in surprising ways. Yeah, so again, partly to play with that idea of being subterranean. We wanted the idea of, I guess like in a mi- an old mine or something like that, of light really leaking in through cracks, so not very sort of obvious and in your face. So there's lots of little spaces around here where the light, the light sources are all concealed and you just get this sort of hint of a, like a warm yellowish glow. Yeah, so it's, it's quite low light levels. Mm. And you leave that on all the time? No, normally when I'm just working here, we don't have the lighting on, so yeah. But for special Special guests, occasions. Thanks, Somali. You're very welcome. Thanks, Richard. Thank you very much. Sorry I didn't hear any more of the piano there, Jan Ryan, speaking with Amali Wright and Richard Buchanan. You can see some images on websites, by Design's website, of course, and our Facebook page, as always, and links on our site too. And that's the show. Thanks to Jan, our producer, Michelle Watts, our sound engineer today. My name's Fenella, and stay with us. Michael McKenzie is coming up now with First Bites. 
This is big. In fact, this is bigger than big. This is the moment we've all been waiting for. Yes, grand final day on the Sunday Extra podcast. The Clash of Titans, a war of words. Our mini-debate series reached its climax. Geraldine Quinn, Casey Benetto, wrestle it out. One last dose of fatal rhetoric, the On The Contrary Grand Final. Join me, Jonathan Green. You can stream or download the program from the RN website.